it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the Talent Equation Podcast. If you are passionate about helping young people to unleash their potential and want to find ways to do that better, then you've come to the right place. The Talent Equation Podcast seeks to answer the important questions facing parents, coaches, and talent developers as they try to help young people become the best they can be. This is a series of unscripted, unpolished conversations between people at the razor's edge of the talent community who are prepared to share their knowledge, experiences, and challenges in an effort to help others get better faster. Listen, reflect, and don't forget to join the discussion at thetalentequation.co.uk. Enjoy the show. Well, well, this week... um, Long overdue guest. I feel like I say that all the time. Uh, but in this case, definitely a long overdue guest, mainly because uh, I have been a big fan of um, the, the the products that this fine gentleman produces. And they have been extremely useful for me in the world that I work in. And we'll talk about that in more detail. I'm not going to give it all away from right from the outset. But I'm, I'm joined by... Uh, Jack Rolf, the founder um, and innovator behind the Coaching Lab. And for some of you who don't haven't heard of the Coaching Lab, you I'll let Jack tell you all about it in a minute. But Jack, welcome. Thanks very much, Jude. Live from the Manchester. It's um, yeah, it's cool to be here. Look at that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm just basically just adding sports equipment to my backdrop uh, as we go. Um, not all of which necessarily am I particularly adept in using, particularly the boxing gloves. But anyway, um, but anyway, yeah, no, good to have you here. And uh, starting, I guess let's um, let's let's start from the beginning. Um, your journey in <clears throat> our world of coaching, and then if you wouldn't mind jumping into coaching lab and all things exciting that happen with that and all that sort of stuff. That would be great. Yeah, I suppose like many people never expected to really be, well, one in Perth, Australia at the moment, and then one to be a coach and one to be a full-time coach as well. I consider myself pretty privileged to be in that position. I think like most 15, 16-year-olds had ambitions to go and play 
for my country at the top level, hockey being my sport. And um, I left that for my sister to do, who's a little bit younger. Um, she went on to play for England and I've pretty much failed in that attempt, but was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, sport has always been a release as a major dyslexic sport was always the you know, the thing I'd probably get up for in the morning, not so much school. Um, so went through, you know, the junior development programs, all that sort of stuff and had some great coaches, had some pretty average coaches as well. And was fairly self-reflective around that pretty early doors. Um, I knew what I liked and didn't like and had a Futures Cup competition, which is a regional selection to the national stuff um, at 17 and uh, didn't get selected. And nine of my mates went on to, Play for England and Great Britain at various different levels, some going to the Olympics, and I was the one that didn't. And um, my coach at the time, Mike Joyce, um, who now does some stuff with the FIH and has worked for the IOC, and was a real good mentor. And he said, uh, I think it was after the last game, we were sat in the hotel lobby, and he said, Jack, do you fancy doing some coaching? And like any 17 year old kid, it's the summer and you want a bit of cash and you don't want to do your paper round, so you say yes. And um, that kind of one thing led on to another. Um, never thought I'd go to university, but ended up going to university to do sports coaching science. And that's a small world because I was meant to do phys ed. And um, the lecturer of the sports coaching science degree, his daughter played for England or does continue to play, Grace Ballston. And Andy kind of poached me along that journey and said, I think you should come and do some sports coaching. Small world again. His wife was head of sport at Kent College down in Canterbury. So whilst I did my coaching degree, I pretty much, after every single lecture, went to go and coach a session, which I think every student probably should do. Um, so that helped me massively. Um, finished a university degree um, and sat in the university library with my 15, 20,000 words dissertation as a dyslexic thinking, okay, this is great, uh, but where do we go next? And how does sports psychology or how does, you know, the title was how do coaches integrate sports psychology and develop psychological skills. And I thought, okay, this is great. I've really understood this, but there's probably a thousand other coaches that really need to understand this. So the coaching lab grew from that crazy idea, um, taking all that research and putting that into a deck of challenge cards and match play cards. And um, it's come a bit of a long way, I suppose, from the mad university idea of going to the Reaper graphics department to get them printed for the first time and, getting some of my mate to check the spelling errors for me to having them produced and working with some cool people around the world. And I consider myself living the dream every single day, um, not because I live in Perth, but because I get to coach pretty much every day and work with coaches um, and just live and breathe it. So yeah, I feel very grateful um, along the journey. Wow. There's a lot to unpick there. First thing to note, actually, interestingly is, um, I wonder, you know, I've met over the years, having worked in a number of different sports and met some fantastic people in, in the world of coaching, some fantastic coaches, frontline coaches. Um, I've got no evidence for this, but just anecdotally, I've, I've noticed that learning difficulties, in particular dyslexia, seem to be quite well i've had too many experiences of people telling me a similar story to you for it not to be coincidental that there seems to be a connection between people with those kinds of you know written stroke stroke um spelling type learning difficulties and coaching i wonder if 
do you think there's a connection for you? Have you reflected upon that or anything like that? Yeah, you're not the first person to say that in a way. And yeah, do reflect on it. I'm probably one of the very few that still use pen and pencil um, and a ruler to, to do my session plans. And I say that because I, I feel it a lot more. And as a dyslexic, I, you have to feel it. You know, you have to know what you're writing. You have to know you're not mess, missing a, a word every single, you know, every other word sort of thing. So, you know, this is that. Um, I much prefer to do rather than to, to listen. And I suppose mm. I'm used to failing in a way of, education was always a okay here's one exam and next week you need to redo it because you didn't get the mark and actually by year 12 I was pretty happy with that so you go onto a coaching field and you might do a game and it might be pretty average and rubbish but actually you know you're used to that kind of plan do review sort of approach um look at that I think it comes with its weaknesses as well I've definitely put 12 players on the pitch at times and and being called out on that one and um (laughs) everyone thinks (laughs) everyone has a bit of a laugh at that but um yeah, I definitely think there's something within that. And yeah, thinking pictures, um, I much prefer to talk to somebody rather than um, write them a, you know, a word missing email at times. Um, and ultimately you deal with people, don't you? So yeah, definitely and 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely, one of the things I, my hypothesis is to a certain extent is, you know, if you, for example, if, if one of the things, one of the areas where you struggle is through a written medium, you almost become you develop almost like a bit of a super strength in the interpersonal and obviously interpersonal skills and intrapersonal skills being you know kind of pretty central to coaching and you know engaging in coaching plus if you have a propensity more towards connection then you know my hypothesis is that it it kind of lends you towards activities that involve in human interaction it doesn't have to be coaching but it feels to me that if you're in the world of sports as a participant and connection and human human interaction interpersonal skills are something that you uh, sort of seem to flourish within then there's almost a maybe others spot that in you and that's where you then get into that scenario maybe without even thinking about it yeah, it's interesting. So I definitely think I ask more questions uh, often because I don't have the answer. So um, just the confidence to ask somebody else, whether that's the athlete or another coach or whatever it might be. Um, on my gap year, I was a supply teacher at Ellsbury Grammar School and you know, a six-week window, I left school and then suddenly became this uh, person that stands at the front of the class and delivers le- or cover lessons. And I remember I hated writing on the board. Um, because as a dyslexic, you could never really get it in a straight line and you'd get your theirs and your there mixed all up and all that sort of stuff. But I was always the teacher that actually invited the pupil to go and do that. Mm. Um, and now I'm more aware of that pedagogy kind of behind it. I can see why that was impactful. But at that stage, I just thought I was doing the right thing to hide away and actually give <laughs> them the opportunity to do the work. But, you know, the more you learn, the more understanding you get around it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then the other thing that uh, struck struck me when you were telling your story is having a younger sister who then went into this. There's, there's clearly a correlation between the younger sibling, isn't there, make, making the progress? <laughs> Alex wouldn't believe that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting, just hearing your story as well, and the journey is how how often when people tell me their stories, how their arrival in the world of coaching is basically a series of happy accidents. 
it's never by it's rarely by design is it it's kind of often you know this and i met this person and then this person said and then and then all of a sudden you know you're kind of in this world that we 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 love and enjoy someone recently put out a tweet and they said oh where do you look for jobs and i i thought to myself i've never actually applied for a job um <laughs> because uh, one i believe that you're always a reflection of yourself in everything you do um in the way you act and you interact but as you say there everything's always led on to something else you know whether that was Jason Lee at Marlow that then led on to Andy Boulsen at Canterbury because he coached Grace uh, to then Craig Boyne to Australia and, and Nick Clark to New Zealand all these sorts of stuff they're just cornerstones so I don't think I've really very rarely sent a CV in it's always been well this person knows that person and somehow you end up where you are yeah yeah it's so funny isn't it so then in terms of I really I didn't know that essentially the coaching lab was an extension of your research um i did my undergraduate dissertation in intentional fouls which might maybe tell you something about the way i play um uh but uh i never thought actually that that might be useful as a reference point having said that i've had several conversations subsequently with various sporting arbiters who it has become useful for and it becomes even more prevalent as sport seems to veer in one direction or the other however you did you know utilize the research you were doing to create you know this fantastic set of resources so let's just delve into that and i guess i'd actually quite like to understand a little bit more about that sort of underlying research and then what I now see it, by the way, now you mention it, and can now see where the connections with sports psychology are, but it wasn't obvious to me before. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first year of university, my friend was an intern at at Reading Football Club um, as a performance analyst and um, probably got a lot to thank Ryan for because I always used to drop him a message and being from Buckinghamshire and being from Marlow, I could, you know, just drop into Reading Academy and go and hang out with the coaches. So I'd go to Reading every you know, a few months almost, once a year at least, 100% every season. And um, come the third year, I knew the coaches pretty well, watched a lot of the trainer sessions, spent time in the change rooms at half time, and, and had a good relationship. And come the final year of study, I kind of thought, what do I do that's actually going to be impactful to me as a, as a coach? And it was around sports psychology of how do coaches develop and integrate psychological skills. Um, if you go through university, you have a bit more of awareness of it. I don't think I've ever sat on a level one course and they've told you probably how to develop the confidence of an individual or give them the, the transfer of responsibility. So I spent time in the foundation phase and youth development phase with um, all the coaches at Reading, a great academy, category one, do some really good stuff. And academies often get a lot of criticism, but they're great environments to learn um, and to be an athlete within. And spent time with them, interviewed their coaches, and it came out with with four principles of, number one, be an ever-changing environment, uh, transfer responsibility, train above the game, and be reflective. Believing that if you can have those four principles within that, within your session, within your session design, you're definitely going to test individuals personally, but also collectively, and create an environment that looks and feels a lot more like the game. That... um that's the sort of nugget that um, would have me hitting the reverse 15 seconds button on a podcast to hear it again. So if you wouldn't mind repeating that to me, because I'm going to need to scribble that one down. Fire them away again. So number one, ever-changing environment. 
Number two, transfer of responsibility. Yeah. Number three, train above the game. Yeah. And number four, be reflective. So can we unpick each one of those? I'd be really interested in kind of what they what what they mean um, and then how they, I guess, are experienced by young people in the main that we're working with. Mm. Um, so ever-changing environment was, it's real life, isn't it, that you don't really know what you're going to turn up to, but you do know what you're going to turn up to. Mm. Um, so you know you're going to turn up to a football um, training session, but actually don't really know what's in that session. Yeah. So... The element of randomness that is controlled and is not crazy chaotic and coach just rocks up and we're just going to do this, but actually there's structured chaos or clarity within the chaos. Mm -hmm. um, so players and athletes are comfortable being uncomfortable, which is a phrase that Rick Charlesworth, Charlesworth would speak about. But the small things of every Tuesday, you don't just rock up and play exactly the same game or do exactly the same warm-up from six o'clock to 10 past six. Yeah. So there's elements of randomness and that environment's ever changing, but it's still football or it's still hockey. So the game is the game, that's never gonna change, but what happens within that is controlled chaos and has some clarity over it. Um, and it's probably my own reflection of a games-based approach that you've got to still have clarity on what you want to deliver. Yeah. Um, so that's that one, the ever-changing environment that's so controlled. Made yeah you made me think about something i was talking to andrew wilson about a couple of weeks ago um where he was talking about dynamical systems theory um but also you know he was saying about you know if it's too stable no growth if it's too chaotic no growth nothing because you're just in pure survival mode and just curl up in a ball and hope it all goes away so like you say it's he used this phrase on the edge of chaos which I quite like. So there's enough, there's enough, like you say, order or stability or structure for something to emerge, but it's not, it's not so structured that it's pre-described almost. So is that, it sounds like you're sort of in that space. And the one example I always come back to is um, I watched Eddie Jones coach. And one thing I know, well, two things I noticed, one, he had far too many coaches. It's amazing. You can have a full <laughs> squad of coaches, um, but those coaches were, were useful because he would, very rarely play a game for longer than probably four or five minutes. So the game may stay consistent, but it was coaches making the width or the depth of the pitch smaller as the game was going on. So that's what a prime example of ever-changing environment that actually a game of hockey is not four 15 minutes. It's actually five minutes, three lots of five minutes every quarter. And it's ever-changing in that respect. Um, and Eddie Jones in his training would change the game or change the environment every couple of minutes just by coaches changing the width. You know, small little things like that. The game's the game, but actually the game that's going on within that is very different. I like that idea. It's a little nugget that. Change the, si change the shape of the playing surface or the playing space whilst they're playing. It's kind of interesting. I do that sometimes myself. I'm just reflecting on it because I realise I've probably got the size wrong. So I'm usually extending it, making it bigger. But actually doing it doing it deliberately is an interesting idea, actually, isn't it? Or the other way I suppose you could do it, if you can't do it live because it's too difficult to do it live, you could at the very least, because coaches, particularly in hockey, are such fans of the extended huddle, you could have that happening while the huddle's happening, couldn't you? And I prefer a self-directed huddle, so I like the, the players to sort of talk to each other rather than me be hovering over them necessarily. But if I am hovering and maybe posing the odd question or something along those lines, you know, if I had somebody else 
changing the pitch just to see if they notice what's happening. That'd be really interesting. No, absolutely. And it's those things that you're always curious as to who recognises it quicker than somebody else. Yeah. Um, an example, another one from hockey would be, um, we'd probably play a little bit too much 11v11 at times within hockey. Mm. Um, but Quan Brown would play 11v11 full pitch. Yeah. Would then play 11v11 three quarters, 11v11 half, and then 11v11 in a quarter. And, you know, that's a prime example of an ever-changing environment. that The game is consistent, but how you're successful and how you work your way through that game requires you to change um, and the environment to change. That's a nice idea. Like that. Constrain it down, open it up, constrain it down, open it up and, and go randomly from a quarter pitch to a full pitch. And yeah, really interesting. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. So I'm big. So I'll go on. Sorry, quickly. I was going to say I'm a big fan of flat markers. Yep. Because you can run over them and you can, you know, in football, they'd call it pitch geography. Mm. But you might create four squares, you know, four corners of the pitch, or you might create three thirds or whatever it might be. And you say, you know, if you score in this one, it's worth two, and this one, it's worth four, whatever it might be. But just creating pitches within pitches, yeah. um, which is effectively games within games. Yeah, that, that is definitely something that resonates for me because I, I do, I, I'll quite often set, if I could, by the way, I would have, if I could have like an Astro that's mine, you know, um, uh, and I want to say an Astro, an artificial turf pitch, which we play on in hockey, but any pitch at all. One of the things that I noticed, by the way, now you mentioned this, is I did some work with Southampton Football Club and I, I went there for the first time to do some work with their coaches and uh it was just just as Ralph Hassenhutl had just started. I've probably completely butchered his name, but I'll try I hope there's some close. Um he just started. And one of the things that their one of their academy uh their head of coaching actually pointed out to me was the first thing he had done was a load of lines painted on the training pitch. I mean, their training facilities are fabulous anyway, but anyway, but on their grass training pitch, he'd had all these different lines painted so that he could very easily transition into different spaces. And it's interesting. I don't have that luxury. I would love, by the way, if I had my own, I would, that's what I would do. I would put all these different lines down that could create different pitch geographies. But what I find myself doing is, you know how you get some people come there and you see all the cones marked out and this, that, and the other. Well, flat markers like you, I just literally will create nine sections on a pitch. Cause I like, I like to have, I like to have vertical lines in thirds so you know broadly speaking you know a right third a middle third and a left third and then I also like to have those sections painted off so that you can create almost like nine pitches within a singular pitch 
but at the same time you've already got the lines painted down so that you don't have to use those nine pitches you can use different different sort of orientations which is interesting also something since you've been away which you may not may not know about we had our first sort of mini festival for the under 10s this uh, this sunday and the reorganization of competition that um england hockey have brought in has meant now that um, whereas under-10s previously would have played on half a pitch going across, which is quite big for seven-a-side under-10 hockey, what they're now doing is they're playing, um, they're making four pitches and they're basically putting a line down the middle of the pitch and they're orientating in a different way. So instead of playing across the pitch, they're playing up and down the pitch, but in a quarter pitch which sounds difficult, but yeah, imagine making it into a quarter. So, so actually, and it's 5v5, and actually that's a much nicer space because it's not quite as long, it's definitely not as wide, but it's wide enough and long enough to orientate around. And when you actually look at it and you look at under 10s, and some of them are quite diddy, you look at the pitch and think, actually, that's actually almost a perfect representation of a full pitch for a child of that age. It's quite, I don't know why it took so long to go like that, but I'm pretty positive about that move. I have a belief that the smallest thing that will make the biggest difference. And it's a question I always ask myself before I make a decision is what is the smallest thing that will make the biggest difference to me in youth sport is the format of the game. Yeah. Um, whether that's from a touches point of view or an experience, the numbers that continue to stay on because they've had more touches, you know, to us, it's, to me and you, it's a natural bias, isn't it? We believe in it. We understand it. We understand it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have a big belief that it's the smallest thing that will make a biggest difference. And we often in youth sport do what's easiest for the adults mm. um, and not necessarily what's easiest for the, um, the kids. And I say that maybe from a different position, but we definitely should think of what's the best for the individual. Well, talking about what's easiest for the kids versus easiest for the adults, it definitely would have been easier for the adults to go across the pitch because the Ds were already marked out. The goals were already in position etc etc so as the volunteer who turned up early who ends up then shifting goals into different places you know which some of which pretty heavy hockey goals and having to orientate and then create d's using flat markers it was quite something to set up that pitch pretty much single-handedly but i'm pleased they did because it definitely worked better do you think the kids could do it in future weeks because they've seen it uh, I, I, I guess so. Um, and we probably would do that. But with this one being our first one hosting, we thought we'd probably get it, better get it organised, you know. Small steps. I'm Small pleased. Step. That's, that's good news. <laughs> um, anyway, we've covered one. Ever-changing environment. Love that. So, next. Transfer of responsibility. Um, okay. Yeah, go on. So, ultimately, the coach is responsible, of course, maybe in a senior environment because they have the name over the door. But the people that are responsible for the coach are the players. Um, and if you never give them the responsibility, they're never going to give you that back in a way. So s- small little things of who you give responsibility to, you know, um, if you always give it to the loud kid, that individual is only ever going to develop their communication or their leadership. So who are you giving responsibility to and why? And when are you doing that? So it might be you know, a lot of football teams would prime players maybe the week before and actually say after this game you're the one going to do the debrief for the team so it's not a sudden shock ah oh, Jack you've got to leave the debrief after the game you've got two minutes to think actually they're priming the kids one week in advance or even before the game and saying actually you've got the responsibility of taking the warm uh, taking the, the pre-match the post-match discussion after 
So small little things of just the awareness of who you're giving information to um, and why and when you're doing it as well. Yeah, I love that. Um, that to me, um, I like the way that what you've said there is there's a number of different strategies that you can use. So like you say, it could be pre-planned. It could be kind of just offered in the middle, you know, in the, in the middle of the session. It could be, for example, through an activity, let's say you've got the five-a-side game going on and you're going to do five lots of five minutes of play where each individual is responsible for the mini debrief in the rest periods between those five minute sessions. So everybody gets an opportunity to be the leader of the group or the the person who creates an observation that might help the team improve or whatever it might be, that kind of thing. And this is where I, I see teaching and coaching very similar, mm-hmm. whereas often we'd maybe see them very separate, but working in education in a primary school, they're really good at giving kids responsibility because mm-hmm. you might have a kit manager yeah. You might have someone responsible to tell the teacher when there's five minutes to go in the lesson yeah. um, or someone responsible for tidying up all the chairs and the desks. So just small things that in education we're really good at. But sometimes when we go to a coaching environment, we believe the coach is the one with all the responsibility. Mm. Whereas actually, if you've got 15 people there, they are the ones that have got that responsibility and privilege. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's something that I'm very, very passionate about but it doesn't always work. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because how it's interesting within some parts of society, expectation levels as to what coaches should or shouldn't do is quite interesting and it's quite influential. You know, recent experiences um, where parents refuse to accept that groups of children could agree uh, the way their session ought to be you know how they would like the session to be you know what what is it they want what is it they want to get out of their activity what is it they how do they want to focus you know how do they want to put their you know and, and it's interesting you know a coach i had a parent who just would not accept that a 12 or 13 year old could be an active participant in de- determining the kind of behavioral activities for each other and holding each other accountable to those sets of behaviors that they want to create it's quite interesting actually it's quite it's quite funny you would never work for a boss as an adult if they never gave you any responsibility, in a way. Um, if you look at your best bosses and your kind of worst, in a way, you'd always come back to the best ones for the ones that gave you the responsibility or the transfer of responsibility to go and do a task or the confidence in the belief in the individual to go and do it. Whereas in a coaching environment, we sometimes maybe switch around that. I, um, I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm trying to stifle this ironic smile. Uh, given some of the experiences I've had throughout my career, uh, I would love to be able to say to you that, uh, you know, kind of leaders in organisations uh, are much better at uh, the transfer of responsibility and uh, not micromanaging, but uh, not always been like that. But I think, think times are changing and I think things are moving on. Yeah. And particularly, I think you say young people, actually, like you say earlier, the important point you make is young people really thrive, I think, when they get an opportunity to take responsibility. Um, not all, but some, um, and some really step forward into that. I, you're right about primary school. Now I reflect on it because my daughter, for example, you know, is, um, and she's an eco rep, uh, responsible for looking into how the school does its bit towards climate change, etc. But then equally, 
she's also got a role as a sports leader. I don't quite know how she fits it in, to be honest. But, um, you know, and so she's doing all of that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, I mean, and, and they take it really seriously and they get really excited about it. And, yeah, it's great. And just small examples, maybe you might ask a player to, you know, you might ask the question, can you think of a warm up to take um, once everyone's here? Would be an easy one. And kids play games in the playground all the time. So they're probably going to go with Bulldog or go with something that they know all the time. Yeah. And I, I suppose kids always know more than we actually think they do. Yeah. Is a reflection that I've probably had in the last couple of um, years in particular that they definitely know more than we think they do. But if we don't ask them the right questions or give them the responsibility, we never get the right answer back yeah. or the, what we want to see back. Yeah. So um, next. Train above the game. Oh, no, I'm really interested in this one because it's interesting language. Train above the game. I really like that. So what does that mean? So you should go into a game having played the game, ultimately. Okay. And played the game and prepared players in an environment that looks and feels like the game. So the example I used earlier around time is a big one for me. Mm -hmm. um, so time might be... So at St. Lawrence College, before I left, we, we won the national final with indoor competition with the under-16 boys with maybe 30 seconds to go. And one of the reflections was that we never played a single training game longer than probably three or four minutes. So the players became really good at scoring goals and defending goals within a one-minute, two-minute, three-minute, four-minute block. We would never, ever play a game longer than four minutes yeah. because the game would ask players to find opportunities to go and score very quickly and yeah. defend for a long periods of time so that ability to train above the game actually because we trained here with we were being smart with time come the final we'd already done it you know we were used to that so you might say it might be scenario play um but it's a little bit more than that in terms of the physicality as well um so just having the awareness of okay well if i'm going to play on a bigger pitch with less numbers what are, what does that ask of players um, it's interesting we had a player review for the team that I coached last year and they said Jack um, we never did any fitness or we never did any skills um, and to an Australian doing fitness is running laps around the oval and doing skills is around the cones or around some tyres on a hockey pitch and uh, I showed them my book and I said well actually we played on a bigger pitch with less numbers so you had to train above the game in intensity to get your physical output because we'd never expect you to run a lap around the you never run a lap around a hockey pitch in a game, so why are you going to do it in training? Um, so that sort of stuff of just training above the game to put different scenarios and situations in to prepare players to go forward. Um, and a principle I would always have is, does training look and feel like the game? And if you can stay close to those principles, you're definitely going to create a better connection between training on a Wednesday night to the game on a Saturday morning. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, in <clears throat> in ecological parlance, they would describe that as representativeness. How how well does it represent the experiences that people are going to have within the game? But which doesn't mean it has to be the like you said earlier. It doesn't have to be the full eleven v eleven. It can be smaller versions of in either smaller sizes or with less numbers or with different different numerical advantage disadvantage. But there are elements from the game being explored by the groups in that moment even different areas of the pitch yeah you know so um 
I think when games-based coaching was was a big driver from from England hockey, we probably saw a lot of goals on the baseline, and then suddenly a goal on top of the circle when we were playing we were playing games um, and put a put some cones along the the D line, and we were suddenly playing you know games-based approach and all this sort of stuff. But then we became really good at just playing inside the circle, and maybe not so good at playing down the left or playing down the right. And probably comes back to the example at Southampton. Probably one of the biggest reasons they put the line on the pitch was the game's very different on the left to the right and in the middle of the pitch as well. So just the ability to train above the game in different areas. So players have that awareness of, okay, well, if I'm going to take a free kick from the left or I get a throw in, what does it look like? You know, what does it feel like? And I, I like the way when you talk about above, what you're saying is that let's take the game as the, ba- as the baseline concept and find ways of creating stretch in that game concept so that it's more than you would experience in an actual game, either in pace or intensity or pressure or um, player proximity or outcome driven or whatever it might be, all of those different variables at play. And scanning is probably an example of that. Um, You know, to me, it's a basic skill Um, and training above the game would be, well, if you can scan this, this, and this, and actually you might have then, when the game asks you just to scan one thing, you know where it is and you're comfortable with it. Um, but if you never train it, you're never going to get better at it. Uh, it's interesting. So talking about that concept of being above, but also linking back to what you were saying earlier on about ever-changing um, and the levels of stability, one of the areas I think that is still really under uh, underdeveloped is the training of goalkeepers. What I either what I see for goalkeepers is I in general, and I'm, I'm, I am generalising, but is either really stable practice activities which are quite static and very. I'm going to stand here and hit balls at you and maybe make you move around a bit, but really pretty much that. And maybe I'll put some things in the way that make the ball around. And then the old favourite I see all the time is oh we'll get the old springy crazy catches and make balls bounce off crazy catches because that's woo woo and all different. And it's like nothing like the reality of it any at, at all. So I see some levels of variability taking place, but in the main quite stable practice activities. And then right now you're in a game with loads of players and you've got to somehow adapt to all of that sort of stuff, having just done loads of static kicking. So, and what I also then see is goalkeepers being really quite passive as in they stand in a goal and wait for a shot and try and save it, as opposed to being active parts of a defensive unit. So coordinating, organising, communicating, sometimes being actively involved in their circle area. I'm getting quite geeky into hockey now, but it'll hopefully translate to other sports as well. Um, And I don't see that. So how do we then create, for example, for a goalkeeper, how can they train above the game? Like one thing I've experimented with, by no means have I got this nailed on right, but where you do have, for example, we often we often play a game which would be cross pitch. So what you'd have is it was naturally separated by the 23 meter line. So you basically got a hockey pitch split into four quarters naturally with lines going across the pitch. So it means what you then have is two pitches side by side broadly. And it, I've played before where you have a six, you have six aside, but it's not six aside. It's two parallel three V threes. Now, it's quite challenging for the players because 3v3 in that space is quite heavy duty. There's a lot of interaction taking place. Um, But for the goalkeeper, it means an attack can come 
either side of them at any time. Now, there's a little bit of danger, uh, I will admit, so I'm not 100% comfortable with it, but it also means from a scanning and a prioritization perspective, what they're beginning to look at is that looks quite well managed by the defenders, so I'm going to put my effort here where there's actually a break on and I might need to do something. And it's quite interesting because it's quite overloading and it, it, it is difficult for goalkeepers to, to attend to. But I've experimented with it. I'm not 100% sure whether it works, but it's so, it seems to do some interesting things. Yeah, I think goalkeepers probably get a lot of... Um, I'd love to be a goalkeeping coach, by the way, because um, you become really good at hitting the ball and drag flicking <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. um, it seems a pretty cruisy gig at times. And uh, I give some of the coaches uh, a bit of stick for that one, but um, it's in good heart. Um, but I, I don't call them goalkeeping coaches. It's probably where I'd go. Number okay. One, because nice. They yeah. are just a just a defender, and they're just a coach. Yeah. You know, ultimately, um, a goalkeeper is a very small part of a team. Yeah. But everyone's of equal balance, I suppose. So I'd never really call it a goalkeeper in hockey. It's just a defender in foam. Um, <laughs> if you ask, like if you ask Pep Guardiola, uh, in possession he's an attacker. Um, the goalkeeper is an attacker, and out of possession the goalkeeper is a defender. You know. Um, so I'd probably go with that number one. Just what is their role? Um, and I'm curious in the next 10 to 15 years of who will be the first team in hockey to play a bit more of an advantageous uh, goalkeeping role um, and whether the equipment will allow for that. I don't think it's a million miles away um, and it would make a lot of sense, I suppose, at a certain time because hockey would often follow the trends of, of football and other sports. So I don't think we're a million miles off that. So I wouldn't call them goalkeepers. And the other one I tried around this kind of train above the game was communication. And we always say communication, you know, we want goalkeepers to communicate. Sometimes they don't know what to talk about. So it's always a good point to actually just prime them and help them talk about something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but often they need something to talk about. And if they stand in the goal, they're always going to save the ball. So don't necessarily have to talk. So there's been a couple of scenarios where I've put the goalkeeper behind the goal um, and they've quickly realised that if they don't speak to their people in front of them, the ball just goes in the goal. Lovely constraint. Love that. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your centre on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Whereas if they do begin to talk to their defenders and organise prior to the ball coming close to them, the ball doesn't get close enough to be a goal. So you over-exaggerate the, the ability to talk because there is no goalkeeper in the goal. You pull them back. They're then a lot more aware of, okay, well, I do need to talk to this person maybe at this time or that time. And here's what I'm going to say, because they know, okay, they need to say stop, but they need to say left or right. So you're just over-exaggerating the ability just to communicate. 
that's really nice and I, I do like I do like that as an idea that's that's a really interesting one because yeah I've definitely seen some goalkeepers don't know what to say uh you know and sometimes to the point of like I sometimes say right pretend you're a commentator and you know and just just be a commentator and just talk about what's happening in the game loudly so that sometimes maybe your defender hears you say oh yeah there's a guy on the right here he's all by himself and he's just about to score <laughs> these sorts of things you know be interesting how we use different approaches Love and that. Just on that one, just on that one quickly. Yeah. I would then often go and ask one of the defending players what the goalkeeper said. Uh, nice. To actually make sure it's being effective. And if it wasn't, I would then go and get that player to go and have a conversation with the goalkeeper. Yeah. And actually say, in this situation, I would like this information. And that's not coach driven. That's just telling the player to go and have that conversation and just peer to peer of. They might want just one word, or they might want a full sentence. So just giving that responsibility as well. That's great. I think that's a really important one, by the way. You know, you need to know if the recipient or the intended recipient was actually given information that they found useful and applicable. Mm. Yeah, love it. Uh, okay, and then last? Just be reflective. Um, so I think this is something that education would do very well and something... In all the academies that I've gone to with football, one thing they do really, really well is be reflective. Whether that's an individual development plan or that's a reflection board that they have um, in their own changing rooms and they might write down a couple of keywords after each game about their own performance or as a group. But just coaches, number one, giving responsibility to players to be reflective. And one of my biggest lessons I learned from was from spending time at Arsenal, actually, and they said... You must plan reflection into your session plan. So you'd always plan for action, but do you plan for interaction? So if you was to just say, oh, I'm going to give, we'll have some reflection at the end once all the balls are put away. Or if you said, okay, we're going to play two lots of five minutes and we're going to have two minutes in the middle to reflect and then do it again. You're being reflective. You know, I think a misbelief is reflection is always at the end of something and maybe not in the middle or even at the start. You know, so I like to reflect at the start of a, a session based on what's happened at a previous session. You know, we'd often see a lot of sessions, one, two, or one, four, five, seven, eight, and just all mixed together sort of thing, but not one, two, three, four, five. So just where do you link back to? And reflection might be through the game as well. So it might be we do a we do start of a game on session two that we actually looked at that topic in session one. So are they reflection? Are there reflections in words, but also in their actions? Because we both know it, or we all know it listening, that you can ask a kid a question and you're going to get the right response, um, or you're going to get a one-word answer. But actually, the true element of reflection is in their actions on the field. Yeah, I like that. Um, it reminded me of um, something Mark Bennett's talked about in the past, which is he calls them hot reviews which is almost alive in reflection in the moment whilst the play is going on with the player through just maybe just a, you know, a, a signal or a, a call or a, you know, a kind of some sort of moment. And it, it comes back to where you stand as a coach as well, you know, because you might, I talk about GPS. If you look at Monday Night Football and on Sky Sports, they have a GPS of all the players. But if you had a GPS on you as a coach, where would you stand? So you might go and stand with a player and actually ask them after they've made their execution, what did you see or what did you feel? That sort of questioning, rather than wait 10 minutes after the game and then say, well, actually, in minute one, do you remember when you did this or what would you do differently? 
Um, so I'd always say a max, like a max 30 second pause, like a freeze sort of thing. What did you see? Um, what would you do differently? Or why was that good? So those sorts of questions. And I try really, really hard as a coach not to ask questions that are closed or that require one answer. And that's a real basic skill, but actually it's probably one of the hardest basic skills to put into practice. Yeah. Is the ability to ask a question that isn't closed. Yeah. It's funny, you know, um, as you're talking, you're actually reminding me of, lot of, of a lot of the things that um, I would do naturally that I haven't been doing post-pandemic. Um, and it's almost that whole idea of, you know, how they talk about like skill atrophy. So having not coached for a little while, talked to a lot of coaches, organized a lot of coaching activities uh, and coach development experiences and had conversations on podcasts and all those sorts of things. And then you get back out there and for some reason, I, it wasn't, it didn't feel right. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And one of them that you've just said there is actually probably that whole point about reflection. It's the kind of live, active, engaged reflection in the activity with the activity, you know, so the idea of, you know, being kind of in, in the experience with the players alongside them, asking them what, they know, what they're noticing, what they're experiencing, what they're feeling, what they're, what they're seeing and all those sorts of things where you're then constantly taking in information, relaying information, changing things according to the information that you're seeing. And I think fundamentally that's it. It's, the, it's, that, it's that lack of connectivity. I think I've almost become a bit, I has, I'm hesitant to say this, but a little bit tell. <laughs> Either that or probably the other extreme, which is um, just, almost the kind of game is the teacher type thing which is not a model I use either you know it's more intentional than that but yeah so I'm being reflective now with you live in this podcast <laughs> there it is <laughs> I, I suppose it comes back to like um I'd always try and write out what I want to get out of a session as well and I think that's important and sorry a real simple thing to do of Jack what do you want to get out of the session tonight mm. you know often we're very player centered but sometimes you'd be quite coach centered in a way that you know, tonight I want to be better at or I need to try and um, do that sort of stuff. So whenever I'd write a session plan, I would probably write my interactions down or something that I'm going to be really aware of. Um, and that's probably something I've learned from Quan Brown in a way that he would often say he would often plan his his interactions of who he was going to speak to, who was he going to be a bit harder on um, and who is he going to be a little bit softer on. There's a good example from Alan Pardew that came out on the news yesterday that um I think when he was coaching Stoke, they came in at halftime and they were 3-0 up and um, he didn't want to give them too much confidence. They were a bit of a relegation battle and all this. And he thought, you know, how do I get them to be pretty steady? And uh, he went to the captain in front of everyone and, and basically just gave his captain an absolute shelling of, uh, you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, but just choosing who you would interact with because that individual knows, okay, I'm the captain, I need to take it at a senior level. And the other player's thinking, okay, we need to interact in this way, we need to behave in that way sort of thing. So mm. just choosing who you, how you style your communication with ultimately. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and then the other thing that you just made me think about actually that's worth mentioning, I remember watching um, Russell Earnshaw and John Fletcher coaching together and I think this is where co-coaching can be so valuable. I rarely have the luxury, um, but I do do sometimes have kind of like assistant coaches so actually what that affords and 
it means then that you can have an assistant coach who is essentially doing the the game management bit, either keeping the score, you know, kind of doing the kind of refereeing bit and organizing and that giving the bonus points or, you know, kind of creating some of the constraints. Whilst I, I'm, and this is what I saw them doing, they were very intentional about this. You had one person managing the activity and then you had one person walking, literally walking through in the chaos of rugby, walking through the activity, engaging with players and sometimes just engaging on moments of connection, like uh, what's your favorite team? You know, how do you think Quinns are going to do this year or whatever it might be, you know, but it's the, the creation of connection, but it also then might be just a this little dropped in question, just a little dropped in question, or maybe a, an idea about, you know, what do you think this game's asking you to do, you know, and then just not even asking, waiting for an answer, just walking off and that sort of thing. And it gives you the freedom to be able to be in the game with the players, as opposed to always being, if you like, removed and managing. And I suppose the one thing that comes with that is connection before correction. Mm-hmm. It's probably a principle that I have, um, that you must connect with the individual before you go and correct them. Whether that's um, even a fist bump or a high five or some sort of greeting or the even asking, can I give you some feedback? Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a school I do some work at the moment. One of the teachers always says, um, when I go and give the people the feedback, they always, this is the teacher speaking, they always say, um, how would you like your feedback presented to you today? Would you like it pretty softly or would you like it, you know, pretty hard down the barrel sort of uh, feedback? Um, but just how do you want things to be delivered? Love that. Love that. Um, I actually really like that idea of... Um just some form of connection before there's a there's any kind of a um any kind of a contribution mm. you know and like you say asking people how i do think that point of you know can i give you some feedback that question is an interesting one isn't it because nearly always people come thinking oh here we go <laughs> but actually sometimes what's quite powerful is can i give you some feedback and they go yes and then you say i noticed the way you pick that ball up there and change your body shape in order to be able to give yourself some more options. I think that's really good. Did you know, did you know you were doing that? And if they do or they don't, you go, oh, anyway, I just noticed it. I just thought it was really nice. And then they go away thinking, oh, oh, that's feedback, is it? I was expecting the other thing. <laughs> and I suppose a reflection for me when I coached um, a team last year was if you don't reflect very often and you ask that question, it becomes a, a pretty big shock to a player. Mm. Um, but if that becomes a weekly thing of well here's some feedback or you can give some feedback to me actually that question doesn't become such a oh here we go again the coaches the coaches on my back because it's mm-hmm. a consistent thing and something again they spoke about at Arsenal that selection should never come as a surprise mm-hmm. because feedback is always consistent throughout so selection is never a feedback tool yeah. you know not getting deselected or getting deselected sorry is not feedback because you've actually had loads of feedback and in interaction with the coach prior that's really interesting selection should never come as a surprise quite like that interesting uh wow yeah i mean that sort of took us off on a little bit of a tangent here but i uh, quite like it now i sense and i could be wrong here but you know you said that your research was based on sports psychology as a kind of fundamental i'm i'm reading into this some uh, self-determination theory was that one of the re- theoretical bases of this Bingo, you got it. Probably one of the biggest drivers, definitely. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, because I mean, from the perspective of, 
I think Daniel Pink's kind of variation on self-determination theory, he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I think Desi and Ryan talk about autonomy, mastery, and something else, is it? You just test me here now, (laughs) Anyway, but let's take those concepts of autonomy, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And this idea that from a motivational standpoint and an engagement standpoint, individuals having ownership or a genuine sense of they are the sort of con- the, the controllers of their own destiny or is, is one thing, their opportunity for the development of individual capabilities, you know, which gives them that, uh, that idea of, you know, they are, there's some growth taking place. There's some, some improvement taking place. And then the final one being, you know, that sense of direction and, you know, and, and a kind of, a, uh, and I think it comes through in the, um, uh, being purposeful you know I as in training above the game for me feels like it's got a lot of purpose associated with it you know we're building a purpose we're building something bigger than ourselves we're working towards a goal that is meaningful makes a difference to us all you know collectively and to us as individuals yeah I feel I could really see that coming through and on a Sunday morning to a coach that's coaching grassroots that might be to a player that is finding calmness in the chaos or a player that can um have some self-control but self-confidence as well to maybe set their own challenges um, or the ability to see what an opposition team are doing and then go and have the confidence to share that information with somebody else. Um, it might be the ability to be self-reflective. So when they come off, actually they're asking themselves some questions or setting new targets to go forward. Um, so that's what it might look like to a coach that's coaching a grassroots team, you know, some calmness in the chaos, communication, creativity, even finding decisions as well. And I see that kind of written throughout the coaching lab. This is where we can now get into the, the utility of some of the ideas within the coaching lab. You know, you have the match day cards, if I'm right. And then you, you I was looking at the website the other day, actually, in preparation for this, and then it's completely gone. But you've got different match play cards. That's right. And then you've got, but they're obviously not just for match play. They're for game-based activities in the main. They're a way of adding extra juice to the game, the game-based activities. But also then you've got others that have emerged now as well. So I'll let you take me through the, the new range. But also kind of where the, I can imagine as you were creating those, there was lots of different concepts that you were pulling from in order to create each one. Yeah, definitely. So this, the game was always a principle that would stay very close to throughout. Um, so yeah, free products at the moment. So match play cards is a concept of player team and player challenges. So constraints in, in kind of pedagogy terms. Um, reflection match play cards, which is 50 different questions that a player can't answer yes or no to. So questions that you might put, it, put in at half time, give to a player for the card journey home. Uh, give to a player or players as part of some sort of team briefing or debrief, um, individual development plan, that sort of stuff. And then the newest one was around animals. So animal match play cards based on the same principles of the original match play cards of team and player challenges, but beginning to use this idea of theming and telling stories and creating the, giving the role of the coach to be a problem setter rather than always the problem solver which comes back to that transfer of responsibility as well. Um, And connecting the movements and characteristics of animals um, to positions on the field or to the characteristics of those cards. 
as well. So there's some, you know, you might be an owl and you might have to scan the pitch and recognise what's happening. Or you might be the snake on the left wing and you've got to, the number of goals you eliminate is the value of the, the number of players you eliminate is the value of the goal. So connecting that sort of stuff up, um, but bringing all those four principles in that we've spoken about to help coaches and teachers ultimately get rid of the question of when are we going to play a game? Because I don't think any player should ask that question. <laughs> no, it should be, it should be what game are we going to play today? <laughs> yeah. That'd be the dream. Yeah. Yeah. What makes me laugh, you know, Jack, funnily enough, is there's a bit of a tried and tested game in the world of hockey. I imagine it, it's played in all invasion games, which is called numbers, or at least my kids call it numbers, where every child's got a number and then you basically call out a number one and then one plays against one in a 1v1 battle. But the remaining five players are standing around watching. So I'm not a fan of it because of that. You know, I don't really like that. Now, on some levels, it's quite good because they're all cheering each other on and all that sort of stuff. And it kind of works. But they love that game. And, and they were like, oh, can we play numbers? And I'm like, do you really want to play numbers? There's lots of you standing around. And I secretly think it's because actually it means they don't have to do so much. <laughs> so I'm sometimes finding myself going, you know what? I've got a better version of numbers for you. We'll play this game instead, which is like turbo, num turbo numbers. And they go, okay, we can play turbo numbers. But it's funny, funny what certain children really gravitate towards as activities that they really, really like. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of things on that one. One, I, I like the idea of turbo numbers. I think that's a, I'm going to steal that. Um, I often do it that uh, you have one pitch in the middle, which is your numbers pitch, that players that are, if their number's called, they go onto that pitch. But also to the other pitch, you might have another game where all those players are not involved. So you might have 15 players and they're playing, a, or 10 players not playing a 5v5 on the other pitch. But when their number gets called, they do have to go to the other pitch and play right. their game and then come back. And the other variation I use is um, the first number you call is relevant to one team. Yeah. The second number you call is relevant to the other teams. If you call a five versus three, yep. team one go with five, and yeah. then team two go with three is another variation. You know, yeah. I use. That's a game that I do actually uh, a lot, which mm -hmm. is, and it's quite a good, because it's almost like a counter-attacking game then. Um, you know, I shout at one side two, one side three, or four. Sometimes you, so you have all these random overloads, underloads, all the way, all the time. They're constantly referring to. You play the game out. It's quite, quite, quite good fun. So yeah, that that's kind of what Turbo Numbers is. So it's you're classic. already you're yeah. already on it. <laughs> it's slightly different, but it's more or less like that. Yeah. Um, okay, lovely. Um, now going back to the cards, it strikes me I've never. I've never actually used them like this yet, but it just occurred to me that you can use them, although they've got slightly separate purposes and different outcomes, things, you can use them in concert with each other. Is that Was that intentional? Yes, we, we actually put six reflection cards in the first deck of match play cards. Yeah, I remember the, seeing them. Yeah, let, yeah. let's see what happens. And... Um, Pretty much five, six months later, we released a whole deck of question cards because we quickly realised that if you're going to do a game, great, fantastic, but then you need to capture that learning mm -hmm. out of that game. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just playing another game mm -hmm. and what learning is coming from that. Um, and the best coaches are the ones that ask the best questions, aren't they, mm -hmm. um, as well? So just that as a toolkit for a coach to say, okay, I'm going to use this question and this question based on this card or this challenge that we've also put into the game. Yeah. Mm. Do you use them 
randomly or do you use them in intentional combinations? So ultimately the coach needs to coach. Mm. So the, the role of the cars is not to remove the role of the coach. If anything, it's probably to promote the role of the coach. Um, so coming back to some of the stuff we spoke about earlier, who are you giving information to, when are you doing it and how are you doing it? So you'd look at a topic or the session focus and then you'd work backwards, working backwards from the game and then think, okay, if we're looking at this, here's the cards that we're going to put in that challenge maybe this individual and that individual. And then here's some team challenges that are a little bit bigger around that session focus and that topic. But ultimately the coach needs to coach and pre-select cards that fit the session focus. And, and also one of the, one of the things that I've used cards for, and I'd be interested to just get your reflections, whether you've heard others doing it sim- similarly. I think one of the challenges that, no, not challenges. One of the things that I think challenges coaches and I get a lot of questions about is differentiation. How do you take mixed ability groups and ensure that each individual is getting opportunities to learn that is appropriate to them whilst you're also managing a large group who, and you've got to get, you know, more advanced players to give them enough stretch and more less experienced players giving them because that would be too overloading and all that sort of stuff. So it strikes me that the cards are a really good tool for that as a way of creating almost like individual stretch for either individuals or groups within groups. Is that something you've either heard of or was that also part of the design idea? Yeah, so there's team and player challenges. And um, within that deck, we didn't put team and didn't put player on the cards because you'd only ever use them in one way. So a lot of the team challenges can be individual challenges and, and vice versa. So it might be some examples, maybe you might literally just put the cards down. The first experience that players would have is actually choosing a card for themselves. So having some self challenge or one of the best ways is can you choose a card for somebody else? Because kids are normally pretty good at trying to gear up their mate to maybe do a harder challenge or say you're not very good at this and you need to do this sort of stuff. Um, so it could be very much peer-to-peer or I know a lot of the football academies would choose three individuals and they'd call them kind of profile or spotlight players and every session they would look to hit those three individuals, not more than anybody else, but really try and work with those three individuals. And over a month, you've hit 12 plus players individually that would often have very similar um, challenges, I suppose. Yes, you might have 12 players and they might have some differences, but you could begin to group some of those challenges. It might be in possession or out of possession or certain areas on the field in certain positions, but begin to profile players and then begin to choose some cards that fit those individuals within it. And it might be that you give a card to an individual for a couple of weeks. You know, it doesn't need to be a game for five minutes. It might be, you've got this card for the next couple of weeks and see how many points you can pick up from it. Or we're going to ask a couple of your teammates to give you some feedback on it at the end. So it's not always a, here's a quick five minutes, give you a card, see what happens and then say, see you later. It can be a lot longer process as well. Like it. That's, um, uh, it's, it's really nice. I like that idea, by the way, of, um, because one of the challenges is, um, you know, try, try my best. And I think with my team of coaches as well trying our best to ensure that each player gets uh you know kind of some interaction with us and some recognition of things they're doing and then maybe some ideas of 
ways they might approach particular actions or perceptions or awareness of space or whatever it might be. But of course, in the general hullabaloo of managing a game with, you know, upwards of 20 young people, getting around everybody is really difficult. So I quite like that idea of almost chunking it up and saying, right, this week we've got three spotlight players. They're going to get the bulk of our interaction. And then next week it'll be three others and the next week it'll be three others. And then actually you can be a bit more intensive then with those individuals based on some of their positional needs maybe or uh, the role that they perform on that day or whatever it might be or being intentional about them playing different roles and different experiences and reflecting with them. It's really quite, uh, it's quite cool. And I think for a grassroots coach, it's probably an easy way to say you are looking at the individual within the group because often we'd always focus on the team and making the team really good. But actually, you know, there might be under 12s and that, that under 12 team is not going to go on and play in the Premier League. It's, you know, this individual and that individual might continue to play and the others might just go and play another sport. Mm. So just giving each individual the best possible experience um, available. And ultimately, you coach, I have this belief that if you, develop every individual you'll probably have the best team because if every individual is at their best or working towards their best you're definitely going to have a better team than the team that just focuses on trying to score more goals and if they are playing if they are as a team actually sometimes the individuality element is actually about role clarity you know um one of the things i find often with young players is not your players any players for that matter adults for that matter is they just don't have enough role clarity so for example they don't know like almost like you know in this in this position when you're playing in this position this is this is one of your primary goals in possession sorry primary activities in possession this is one of your primary responsibilities out of possession just having that clarity sometimes is like absolutely critical and then it can be a focus area of of work Um, and, and it can be defined by their capabilities as well you know so for some athletes or some players, for me, I'd say, when you're in this position, this is your role. Now, that might be different from someone else. you know. So somebody who's like a very, very good passer, for example, it might be right. When we're in possession, your primary role here is to be making passes here, here and here, and other players getting into the position. But for someone who's less of a good passer, it might be much simpler. Your role is to make sure that you get the ball to that player there, and then we can begin our attack phase from that position there. So it's like defining it accordingly. And that's a prime example of to me being player-centred, that you just have awareness of, okay, this individual needs some information that's fairly explicit. And me being a dyslexic was probably that player, you know, that wanted information, not always force-fed, but given to me. Whereas some of my teammates would have wanted to be asked and challenged quite deeply on what they, what information they needed to really understand. So I suppose it comes back to that. The comment you were making around, you know, players understanding and role clarity and like every country probably but you get quite a lot of loud coaches in Australia on the side of a hockey pitch and footy pitch and they they shout some great stuff and uh, they shout wide but the players never seem to get wide <laughs> and um, you then go and ask the players of well what what, what is wide and they go oh, I don't really know <laughs> you know so we would often we would often ask players to do something but they don't really know what we're asking them to do yeah, um, yeah so role clarity is important and you know, I know at Watford, um, they put some of the cards in just different positions. You know, if you're in this position, this is your challenge and this is what you've got to do. So actually on a game day, yes, they're learning the game and trying to win in brackets, but actually they're trying to win their own battle and their own individual challenge. Yeah, I mean, I, I love um, one of the things I've done over the years is, and I think this is where the animal cards come in. 
so strangely enough over the years i've evoked animals as a means by which to um evoke an idea within a group around a way of collective behavior or some some collective action so fundamentally it's i guess it's sort of tactical activity but it's a way of sort of getting people to have a bit of an understanding about what a collect what their collective role is in a given moment so for example we used to have something called armadillo and what that was was when we were threatened by a breakaway we needed to get we needed to immediately converge on the center of the field or converge maximum number of bodies on the area of greatest threat, which is essentially the direct line to goal. Um, So we would curl up in a ball, ultimately like an armadillo. And then in order to create some kind of delay so that whoever was breaking against us had to adjust their action to go somewhere else, and then that would slow them down so that we could then get more bodies behind the ball so that that sort of, you know, fleeting moment of, of numerical um, differentiation, them being superior to us, could be managed effectively. So that was one concept we had, which was the armadillo. Um, the other one I had was uh, we, had a, we had an offensive idea around, which I called shark, which is essentially the idea of sharks circling a school of tuna and, and then condensing them and then picking them off. So it's the idea of sometimes when you played it played against a packed defense, a team sort of like retreating into their area to sort of park the bus, so to speak. We would be like sharks, but we would be recycling the ball around that area in order to make, to make an incisive strike into the circle when there was a, a moment of weakness in their coordinate in their defensive coordination, and we could strike into that space. These are just notional ideas. I've got lots of those. But anyway, I'd be interested just to get some reflections. Yeah, I suppose um, it's amazing what stories can do. <laughs> and I say stories in terms of just animals and characteristics that, you know, so I play a game, you know, call it shark attack around some of the animal yeah. cards that a shark attack might be every three tackles you make, you get a player from the opposition. Um, yeah. So little stuff like that, that it tells a player to be quite attacking um, but quite defensive at the same time as well without actually giving a full five-minute lecture on you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, or even, you know, playing rhinos versus snakes. You know, so one team might have a snake challenge, which is around movement, whereas the rhinos have got something that's a little bit more bulldozer, sort of, I need to make some tackles. So kind of putting different challenges against other challenges. Uh, but to players, they just see that as animal versus animal. Um, and it's interesting they can connect with that quite a lot. See, now, what I really like about that, the way I would use rhinos versus snakes is, and I imagine you've used it in this way, so one team I would give that card to and obviously not be telling the other team that they're the rhinos, and then the snakes I would give that card to and not be telling the rhinos that the snakes have got their goal. So the snakes, I imagine, are getting... They're getting, like, bonus points every time they do an effective elimination through, you know, a kind of dribbling action you know because that's how i evoke the idea of the snake um the sidewinder almost the rhinos are obviously coming through and tackling or something along those lines now it's really interesting isn't it because the snakes need to dodge the tacklers <laughs> the tacklers need to make the tackles so it's it's almost like you're creating abuse you'd get snakes funnily enough you'd probably get snakes 
by virtue of the fact that the rhinos exist who are all desperately trying to make tackles. <laughs> so it's almost quite an interesting idea as, as to what would happen as far as that's concerned. And they quickly realise what the opposition are doing. Yeah. And they quickly realise, ah, okay, they've got to try and they're winning the ball or they're being quite attacking. So they automatically take more touches to get out of the bit of space or run to space a little bit more. You know, one of the, we always tell kids to pass the ball, um, which is great, fine, but when and how and, and who to sort of thing. So one of the cards is around every five passes you make, um, you send a player off from the other team for 30 seconds. You know, so you're not saying you can't score, but every five passes you make, you create an overload for yourself as well. So set that some of the stuff and you might just put that for hold for both teams or for one team. You know, as you say, they're kind of opposites attract, don't they? So put in contrasting challenges that, you know, in technical terms, afford you the opportunity to, to see something that you want to see. And I always tell up to coaches, oh, if this is your session focus and I rocked up, would I see that? Would the, what is the game asking players to do? Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I'll let you say the stories that are associated with different types of animal. And it makes me think of Coach Carter because he used to he used to use uh, girlfriends, wasn't it? He had different names and they had different stories attached. And that was what there was defensive strategies we used. I remember Delilah was one of them, wasn't it? But I, animals, I think, is a more approachable one because it's a way of particularly with young people, they get a real sense of, you know, how they need to need to act eagle was one which essentially is when we when we when we deny the pass to the wings so we spread like an eagle would to deny passes to the wings to force the play into the center i also refer to that as a fly trap because again you want them in the middle and then you close on them and things like that so there's lots of different ideas that we can utilize as a way for us to coordinate and then when you start hearing them calling those ideas out themselves fly trap fly trap and then you get it that's really interesting and exciting when you start to see those things emerge and you begin to create kind of different worlds in a way or different themes for the youngsters during the week so you know you might go to sea world on a monday um mm -hmm. but on wednesday you go into you know jungle run and you've got to find a way to how many levels can you get up or how far into the jungle can you get before the other team sort of stuff as well so um just beginning to connect that and Ultimately, speak to young people because as adults, we get older and the kids get younger, uh, which is going to be a, a challenge for every coach. Um, but just how can you speak the language of the kids? That's cool. You just got me. You just got my creative juices whirring now. That's tonight's session sorted. Jack, thank you. Very good. <laughs> Excellent coach development. Um, yeah, I've got this idea. I've had this idea I was playing around with anyway of four different pitches that they're going to rotate around. And I've got under 12s and under 14s. And I'm trying to do much more integrated sessions with them so that, you know, so we're going to play, there'll be probably be four aside and there'll be two under 14s and two under 12s as a way of kind of getting them to sort of, it's quite nice because the under 14s look after the under 12s, but then also the under 12s are getting used to playing with the under 14s. So it's going to be quite nice. But I like the idea of I'm going we to do three pitches. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Yeah, so I was going to do, I'm going to do four different worlds. Love it. Yeah. It's going to work really well. <laughs> yeah. So we've done that and we do uh, kind of three different worlds and there's a different challenge on each or different challenge card on each pitch. So you might go from sea world to jungle run to desert Island. Um, yeah. And the teams rotate one position up, but the card stays consistent throughout. So you've come from one pitch and you go into another but that challenge is then different. So how quickly can you adapt? Because the team you go into has already spent one game there, you know, so they're already one step ahead. So how quickly can you then work your way through? Love that. Love that. 
Well, well, this has been really great. Um, I mean, you've got loads of insights and lots of different uh, different thoughts here. And I love the fact that, you know, there's kind of new developments happening with the, with the cards um, and lots of different ways of using them. And I've, I've just thought of loads of different ways of using them. You got, you got any insights as to what might be coming out next from your, your kind of innovation center, you know, you, you're, you're a, you're a content production powerhouse. So what's, what's next? Yeah, I do my best thinking in the coffee shop in the morning. So I've always got some ideas kind of flying around and turning post-it notes challenges into, uh, you know, into cards for the future. I suppose one thing would always stay very close to the game and also stay very close to those four principles that have underpinned all the other decks. So working within those four principles to support coaches and kind of be learning led um, and people driven, you know, massively throughout. And and although I know we've talked a lot about kind of hockey related stuff today, it's probably it is worth pointing out that you've deliberately made the cards applicable across different game domains. They're not specific to hockey in any way, are they? No, hundred um, percent. Totally multi-sport. You know, ultimately the game is exactly the same whether you're playing AFL or you're playing soccer or you're playing netball, basketball, whatever. There's a post at one end and you you know a goal at one end, and one team's trying to score and the other team's trying to stop them from scoring. So the fundamentals of invasion games are, you know, totally very general, very specific, uh, general to the whole group. So yeah, no sport specific language or imagery kind of on the cards at all. Brilliant. Okay. Um, and then how do they, how does someone inspired by our conversation get hold of, get hold of some? Yeah. So wherever you are in the world, I think we ship to 36 countries at the moment, which is great because it means more coaches are coaching through games which is awesome um so yeah if you head to the coachinglab.org and um you can find all the products on there and on social media at the underscore coaching lab and um yeah head online head onto the website and yeah wherever you are in the world we can get them to you awesome brilliant stuff brilliant stuff um jack really enjoyed the conversation um really glad we could uh, we could catch up um all power to you Cards have certainly been a, they're a bit tatty, to be honest. Um, you know, they've fallen the bottom of the bag and all that sort of stuff. So they're well used. Uh, and I, in fact, I've lost most of them because uh, I've given them out to all of the, all of the young coaches working, working with me. But uh, yeah, but anyway, they're well used in, in my world anyway. And they've definitely been a, a major, a major sort of part of where we've gone. And you, so I think, I know you've definitely made a, significant contribution to the industry even even just in in my world so uh so looking forward to what your creative mind creates next awesome and yeah keep the ideas coming and yeah great to see that having some impact nice one um oh just before i forget if somebody wants to reach out i know you gave the website earlier on but is there a way they can contact you direct if they've got questions or ideas or things they want to talk to you about yeah, so more than always happy to chat. So info at thecoachinglab.org is my email address or jpr underscore 25 on Twitter. So yeah, we're across all the social media. So just get in touch and yeah, happy to jump on Zoom and answer any questions and have a chat. Nice one. Appreciate your time, Jack. Awesome. Cheers, June. Thanks very much. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Talent Equation podcast. If you like the show, then please consider supporting it by leaving a review on your favorite podcast player, telling your friends about it, or even becoming a hero and show your appreciation by becoming a patron. Just head over to thetalentequation.co.uk and click on the Becoming a Patron button at the top of the page. 